Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Unacceptable Behavior Podcast. Uh, my name is Braylon, and I have been sitting on my couch for approximately 20 minutes trying to think of what the fuck I was going to talk about today. Is it too early to swear? It's not too early to swear. It's not like this is YouTube. But yeah, I am very, very in my head these past few weeks. Um, I'm not sure if I ever shared on the podcast that right before my pregnancy um, started in, I want to say, early early September, before I got pregnant, um, I was diagnosed with ADHD, which is a very trendy diagnosis right now, so I was very, very hesitant to, like, actually accept that I, that it might be, like, actually an ADHD thing, because, you know, I don't know. I go on TikTok, and I see so many people talking about it, and it seems to be a lot more common, and there's two sides to that story. One is I'm super grateful that um, more demographics than just cisgendered young, young male children are getting diagnosed with ADHD because I know they present differently in different ages, in different genders, in different backgrounds, and, you know, the symptoms are not always going to look the same. So I'm super grateful that we are expanding our definition of attention deficit disorder to include more people. But at the same time, I I hear the criticisms that's like, oh, fuck, like everybody has ADHD now. And I don't know if it's necessarily that everybody has ADHD now. I think it's really just that like more people had ADHD than we thought, right? So I don't know. There's a little bit of a delicate bounce. So whenever I tell people I have ADHD, and I'm curr- that that's the other thing, is I'm currently unmedicated for my ADHD because I got the diagnosis right before becoming pregnant and I was not going to do a medicine change that early in my pregnancy or even like right before I got pregnant because I, I knew that we were going to start trying in September. So like getting the diagnosis in early September or... um late August, it just didn't even really feel like an option for me to be like, oh yeah, let me try to get off these SSRIs and switch over to this stimulant. And then, you know, my psychiatrist also was very hesitant about that diagnosis, which I got from my therapist, who I've been seeing longer than my psychiatrist, actually. Um, but, you know, there's there's the battle of going through the healthcare system and trying to get people to believe me. And whenever I was discussing with my psychiatrist about going on stimulants, uh, she was pretty insistent that my cannabis usage was contributing to the executive dysfunctioning and attention deficits that I've been experiencing um, for years. I mean, really for my entire life, which is funny because I've not always been a smoker. I'm, I'm, I, I picked up cannabis in the past few years, and I've certainly been experiencing these things longer than that. But I think that um, the general, like my psychiatrist's general misconception of cannabis and uh, maybe even a little bit of prejudice against those who use cannabis um, 
she was not comfortable with offering me a stimulant on top of that. Um, To which I argue, like, if I am going through a PTSD episode, if I am experiencing a flashback, if I am having a high anxiety day, or my mind is just too fucking busy because I have ADHD, (laughs) then I uh, will utilize cannabis microdosing. I go to school for cannabis sciences. I have studied the endocannabinoid system. I read the latest research more so than I think most people do because I consider it a huge part of my industry as a professional. I want to be able to talk about cannabis on this podcast in a way that actually makes sense. Um, but I, it, it sort of just felt like I was at odds with her. Like I was fighting with her a little bit on it and, and I have to defend not only my knowledge of cannabis, but my use of cannabis and tell her that like, no, I'm not an idiot. Like I'm not just getting stoned all day and wondering why I can't focus on things. Like, it's not that at all. Um, And that certainly makes for a tricky dynamic and just an overall tricky conversation to navigate between me and her. Because I, you know, part of me really just wants to, like, defend cannabis as a medicine and, like, go super, super hard on it. But at the same time, I... I'm not going to undermine her professional medical experience. And I would hope that she doesn't undermine my personal choices that are backed up by the same scholarly, peer-reviewed information that she uses to distribute her medication. So I'm not sure if I'm going to end up switching psychiatrists or what, but obviously right now... As I'm going through a pregnancy, I think I'm in month six. I might be starting month seven soon. Jeez. Oh, oh my gosh. And I also, because a pregnancy is 40 weeks, right? But people don't tell you it's 40 weeks. They tell you it's nine months. And, like, it depends on when you're pregnant. But, like, 40 weeks is closer to 10 months than nine months. And I think that's fucked up (laughs) because I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have my baby in three months. So it's February 28th and I'm like, I'm going to have my baby in three months. It's like March 28th, April 28th, May 28th. No, I'm not going to have my baby in May 28th. I'm going to have my baby around June 17th. So closer to four months from now than three months from now. And imagine my disappointment as a bitch throwing up with hyperemesis every single fucking day. And I finally get to the point where it's like, yes, baby, you only got three months to go. And it's like, you actually have more than three months to go. And it's insane. Um, I'm making a lot of like irrational, insane decisions lately. <laughs> Which they're actually, no, I'm not going to say that. Because I'm talking, I'm, I'm, I'm talking myself, I'm talking badly about myself. <clears throat> and I shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, I made some informed decisions that I have occasionally been regretting. <laughs> uh, one of which is that I 
um, in the past year, I've talked a lot about theater trauma and I've talked a lot about uh, being in this city and experiencing the theater scene and seeing a lot of like gross, corrupt bullshit happening. And um, I, I was at a point where I sort of swore off theater. Um, but I have since found a space that I am comfortable working a space that I feel respects my boundaries, respects my decisions, respects the emotions of others, and um, maybe not everybody necessarily agrees with me on that, but it is a space where I have felt incredibly comfortable. And so I auditioned and signed up to do two of their upcoming productions, one of which opens March 25th, which is the first day of my third trimester, and the other production, which opens, um, which opens the second weekend of July, which is about a month after I give birth, assuming that I give birth on a normal schedule and that I'm not late. Dear God, I hope I'm not late. Um, (laughs) hopefully we can... I'm going to try to talk my boob wife into an induction because of the pain and trauma of the pregnancy, but I'm not really talking about the pain and trauma of my pregnancy today. Um, but yes, I, I have been having so much fun doing these projects, uh, but there's parts of me that are torn up for several reasons. Uh, one is when I open my mouth to sing, it is incredibly evident to me, I can hear it in my voice, but I can also feel it in my voice, that uh, the acidity from the constant puking has really affected my intonation and uh, really stripped my throat raw and has given me a very raspy, tired sound. Not like a, like a cool like rock star raspy sound, but just like a, oh man, this bitch has been at a concert screaming all night, but it was really just because I was, like, profusely vomiting everywhere. And, uh... I have to say, it's made me view theater in a way that I haven't really viewed it before. Um, I like to go into a rehearsal space, um, because of the trauma of growing up as a child actor and going to theater school and like being constantly drilled on like what's professional, what gets you hired and and um all of these unnecessary focuses when you end up being a community theater actor. I like to go into my rehearsals and be the most prepared person there. I um I would get in trouble in my theater school if I didn't bring a pencil to rehearsal, so like I always come stocked up with pencils and like it's funny because I walk into the rehearsal space and like the stage manager is in there with like a giant box of pencils because everybody else didn't bring any but like I'm super over prepared because I feel like I'm a fucking like equity actress walking into this like little community theater in the middle of nowhere you know what I mean and so I go into these spaces holding myself to these standards and having these expectations 
for myself and also for the process that I'm about to be a part of, that it is going to be exceedingly professional in every way, shape, and form, and that I will be exceedingly professional in every way, shape, and form. And you open your mouth to sing at a music rehearsal and you go, and it sounds like you've been throwing up and partying all night. And that has put me in a place where I feel so incredibly humbled in a way that is interesting to feel and sad to feel and it also feels like an immense amount of personal growth is happening so there's a lot of emotions going on at once it it feels like my priorities are constantly shifting and changing and where I like to go into a rehearsal and like prioritize professionalism I am now in a place where I feel safe emotionally and I'm physically in a place where I feel sick and somewhat incompetent at points so I'm going into these rehearsal spaces in a, in a place of extreme vulnerability, working with people I've never worked with before and knowing that the impression that they're getting of me isn't this perfectly manufactured one that I spent 15 years of my life cultivating and shaping. And I still battle with these thoughts of, you know, are these people judging me? Are they thinking, oh my god, I'm never going to cast her again? Are they thinking, oh, she's not that good of a singer. I can't believe that she put her in this position. And it's and, and I have no reason to believe that other people think that way, but I have been taught that that's how people see and think of you when you walk into a space. Um, I have been told about the importance of first impressions for longer than I've like been forming memories <laughs> um it is crazy to think of like how much your mind is molded into like this person who has to take themselves super seriously and like almost to the point where you don't have fun anymore because you take yourself so seriously and attempt to appear so professional in every environment that you almost lose the love of what you're doing to begin with. And that is such a weird thing for me to acknowledge because I've just I've just always been told like, yeah, you have to you have to be tough to be in the industry. You have to do this, you have to do that and um now I'm six months pregnant and I'm like, you know, I don't really have the energy to like be tough and <laughs> like put on this, put on this big facade. And I'm also learning that just like, even without me being pregnant, that like that facade just is unnecessary. And it's something that I am allowed to drop because it's something that I've put on myself and that really I've been blaming the community as a whole for these problems 
and for these pressures and those problems and pressures definitely exist but I I truly believe now that I have exaggerated them to the point where I thought it was gospel like I thought everybody was doing what I was doing and then I talked to Robert and I you know I talked to other actors that I'm close with and some of them who who share my traumatic experience will will back up with what I'm saying, but a lot of people are just like, "Wow, that doesn't sound fun. That sounds that sounds like really really hard. Like you don't just go into a community theater and like have a fucking ball. Like, <laughs> and 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 I don't. And it's hard for me to distinguish how much of that is on the theater and the environment that they cultivate, and how much of it is on me and my own traumatic experiences. But really overall, I'm just learning that there is such a bigger difference between community theater and professional theater than I ever previously realized. And that's not what I was taught growing up. I was taught that like you should act the same around the janitor that you do around the producer. And you maintain professionalism in every single setting because you never know who's watching and you never know who could give you a job. And so I have been in this city for five years volunteering to do shows and acting like I am this, like, fucking equity bitch. (laughs) And, And there were environments where that was very welcome and appreciated and there are environments where it's like oh my god like this girl just needs to calm down like I like I was going too hard the difference in community and professional theater is vast and so I'm I'm gonna do a survey in the next couple weeks here because I'm very very curious about uh, people's opinions on casting Because I have a theory that casting um, in a way that is blind slash conscious to color, disability, age, race, all of the above. um, I think that the rules are different in community theater than they are in professional theater and even more different than they are in Hollywood. So an example for me is if you are doing a piece that uh, portrays a disabled actor then if you are doing it in Hollywood there's no fucking question that you hire a disabled actor because there's so many disabled actors in Hollywood looking for work you have the budget to accommodate for their accessibility needs which you should you have the resources to actually go straight to the source and you have the media watching your every single move so even just even if you don't give a shit about people just from a PR standpoint that's going to make the most sense for a Hollywood production now the reason I find it different in community theater I'll skip over professional theater because I think that's I think that's slightly different But with community theater, if you are doing a show that needs to portray some form of marginalized or discriminated against group, 
then what is the moral, what are the ethics involved in asking an actor of a marginalized group to come into your space and volunteer their time to act as representation in your production? I'm not saying this is always the case, but there are definitely, there are definitely um, areas in this city where it is extremely difficult to get any form of diversity, whether it be, um, whether it be race, gender, size, ability, you know, um, mental health capacity, any of those things. It can be so hard to find these people. And isn't it kind of patronizing to reach out and say, hey, you know, nobody else wanted to do this part, but I really wanted somebody on the autism spectrum to play this part. So will you come and volunteer your time and your energy and your talents and your efforts to come and represent my space so that I don't look like an asshole for casting a neurotypical person in this role. And I am not a marginalized group in any way other than, um, I, I, I guess, intellectual disability because of the ADHD and PTSD and whatnot. So the example that I am actually able to speak to directly is like Diana, a character like Diana in Next to Normal. As a person, um, as a person who has been suicidal, who suffers from chronic ongoing depression, who has post-traumatic stress disorder, um, I have seen many, many, many neurotypical women get cast as Diana. And most of the time, nobody bats an eye to a neurotypical person being cast in that role but when you go to another form of disability um such as um being on the autism spectrum then that's going to be slightly different it it might be controversial or it might be offensive or you might not be being representative of this marginalized group if you cast a neurotypical actor to play a role on the autism spectrum. And then you have more clear-cut cases, such as you don't cast white actors in traditionally black roles, um, especially if the story is about race. Um, So you have shows like Once on this Island, which I did in high school in an all-white production. (laughs) Most people with brains do not question that you cast people of color as people of color. Um, A slightly smaller amount of people will say you don't cast neurotypical people in aneurotypical roles. And an even tinier percentage of people will say you can't uh, cast someone as a certain sexuality unless they are actually representative of that sexuality. An even smaller amount of people will say you can't cast somebody 
who has never had mental health issues as a character with severe mental health issues. So I'm wondering, just on a larger scale and just from my primarily white neurotypical theater-going audience, I am incredibly curious to see where y'all think that line falls. Um, Because I've been having a lot of thoughts about it lately and, you know, as... As it spins around more in my head, I feel more and more guilty about the idea of bringing in marginalized actors just for like, it feels, it feels like performative activism. It feels like, okay, well, I want to do this show with this specific character, but I don't have a person to do it, so... I'm going to reach out to this marginalized actor that I know and I am going to request that they come into my space and do it for me for free. Um, and that's obviously, that's obviously different than Hollywood where you can easily find these people, easily pay them a living wage, give them the work that they need and deserve. Um, But that's just something that's been hopping around in my mind lately. I've been thinking a lot about my relationship with theater and just trying to reconcile with a lot of the ideas that have come up for me in the past year because I have uncovered this insane theater trauma um, with the theater school that I grew up in. And it's just... A matter of me reconciling that trauma with the ideals that I have as opposed to the reality that we work in. And I don't want what I'm saying to get misconstrued at all as, you know, let's let's go off and like miscast everybody and fuck minorities and all that. That's that's the furthest thing from where I'm going, but I do just wonder about like the moral compass of it all. And especially because I am a white person and I do think that the most popular conversation surrounding this is in regards to colorblind or color conscious casting. Although I know that there's also some huge stories going on right now about trans representation in theater, which is also incredibly important. Um, But as a white cisgendered woman, um, I've been wondering about these things a lot and how they are affected uh, when you are discussing them in different contexts and when you are uh, bringing up these problems in different environments, in places that do pay, in places that don't pay in places that are covered by Actors' Equity or SAG-AFTRA, and places that are not. So in the next few weeks here, I do plan on posing that question um, to, again, what I acknowledge is my primarily white cisgendered audience. But that being said, I'm also really gunning for um, getting some guests to come on and actually give a perspective that matters because white people, white cisgendered people's perspectives don't really matter on this. It's an interesting thing to talk about. It's a great discussion. I'm glad to bring it up and to like get the wheels turning. Um, but ultimately it is, it is not my place to make any sort of definitive statements. 
So I'm excited to get some people to come in and really discuss the ins and outs of performative activism in theater, in production, um, in community theater, all of all of these different nuances, I think, are going to be really interesting to explore, just to explore the effects and also the environment, how it has changed and arced over the past 10 years, over the past five years, over the past two years amidst the civil rights movement. Um, and again, while I'm curious about hearing what my cis white audience has to say, I'm even more excited to bring to my cis white audience the perspective of some folks who actually have a say in this and can uh, speak to how they feel about activism in the industry and where we are going, where those nuances are, where those lines are. And I'm really excited to bring that type of conversation into the podcast. Again, (laughs) I'm pregnant and I'm doing two shows right now. So when all that's going to happen, I have no fucking idea, but I will be, um, but I will be reaching out to people and uh, having those discussions. And eventually you will get to hear it on the Unacceptable Behavior podcast if I have anything to do with it. So this has been a short, short episode of the Unacceptable Behavior podcast for me. Uh, but I hope that it was enough to uh, satiate the audience and bring you all back for more. On Friday, we are going to have our fourth episode of Pizza and Polyamory featuring me and my partners, Robert and Patrick, where uh, we're going to talk about um, what our blood relatives, I guess, (laughs) I'll say. I I mean, we're talking about like our coming out stories. We're going to talk about how that shifted dynamics um, within our own families, how introducing multiple partners to our families goes. Um, And again, we're in a very interesting situation where we've known each other for a long time and uh, we're friends for a long time before any of this even happened. So it's going to be a very fun conversation, I'm hoping. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you guys all there on Friday for our next Pizza and Polyamory installment. Next time on the Unacceptable Behavior podcast, I have a super special fun announcement. Um, And that's all I'm going to say about it right now. But yes, I have a super fun announcement coming up. It may or may not be a workshop. So I am super excited about it and I will be sure to get you guys the information as soon as I have more. Duke's going crazy outside. So (laughs) this has been an episode of the Unacceptable Behavior Podcast, albeit a short one. Thanks for joining me and I will see you all on Friday.